I'd ask you to please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. We've come as far as verse 20. Luke chapter 20, verse 20. If uh, this is your first time here and you don't have a Bible, I'd ask you to raise your hand. If, it, if it's not your first time and you forgot your Bible, please still raise your hand and we're going to bring you a Bible. Uh, if anyone needs a Bible, please just raise your hand. Everyone got their sword? Awesome. Awesome. Well, the Lord's been taking us on this beautiful journey. Um, uh, I do want to encourage you before I, I jump too far into the word here. September 11th at 2 p.m., you heard we're going to be having our baptism picnic. Some of you have been with us in years past. You know, it's an awesome time together. First and second service get together. It starts at 2 p.m. Um, but I will ask those that have not been water baptized. As you know, maybe some of you have gotten saved throughout the year. We have had people do that and we want to encourage you to come out and be baptized. It's commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ in Scripture. Um, obviously, it's an outward profession of an inward transformation of heart. We do it right out here and kind of park in the other parking lot around the street. And we kind of open this whole place up, you know, kind of old school, hippie-like. We just throw blankets on the ground. We, you know, not for the baptism part, obviously. You need water for that. Some of you are looking at me going, Pastor, I'm not connecting the dots. No. We set up the baptistry out there. We obviously water baptize. Uh, baptizo means in the Greek immersion. We baptize in obviously our community, our neighbors. It's a witness to all of them. It's beautiful. And then afterwards, um, we have a time of fellowship. We cook on the grill. Uh, we listen to, you know, we have some music. We have time of worship. It's really a sweet time just to come together and just be able to be with like-minded believers and just be able to just totally be peaced out and just enjoy the Lord and enjoy the day. Uh, we pray always for good weather. Please be praying for that. Um, but it'll be a sweet time when people uh, people make that outward profession. So again, please mark your calendar September 11th at 2 p.m. And it goes to right around 6 p.m. in the evening. So we have been traveling through the book of Luke. We're almost to the end of the book of Luke. Um, and uh, praying about what next book we'll go into. It'll be John or Hebrews. I'm still praying through that. But I'm um, waiting for the Lord to confirm that. But in chapter 20, last week, if you were here with us, if you weren't, um, you know, I encourage you to get their teaching online. Um, that's on the church app or the website. But uh, not uncommon, but Jesus' authority had been continuously questioned. And not only by the religious leaders, but sometimes even by some of the lay people that were kind of going, what's going on? How is this all working? And you know, specifically, we know the religious leaders had come and he gave a very beautiful parable, the parable of the wicked vine dresser to speak right to their hearts so nobody could miss it, specifically when he was calling out exactly what the problem was. And that was very clear that Jesus Christ, God's only begotten son, was sent and he had sent the prophets before that to minister to his people, to, as a mouthpiece to his people, certainly his son to save his people. And he was speaking to the religious leaders in this parable. And he said, you know, as they were listening, you would think they would have repented right on the spot. Oh, man, this is what we he's talking about us. This is what we have done. We have literally rejected Messiah, you know, Yeshua, right? Jesus or Yeshua. And so they're, they're turning around. They're hearing these things. And yet that very hour, it says in verse 19, they sought to lay hands on him. But they feared the people for they knew he had spoken this parable against them exactly what was going on. It was nefarious. They knew exactly what was going on, that they didn't care. They were almost indifferent. And I, I just would pause before we jump into verse 20 and just think about that. In, in the earlier chapters we read in his triumphal entry as he was coming in, he, Jesus wept because it was declared that God would come like that, this first coming, and that he was coming to bring salvation. And this was the day, the very day that 483 years to the day, literally, that it was proclaimed that Christ would come. And, and instead of finding a people that were madly in love with him and waiting for a Messiah to come, you know what they found? A people that were indifferent. They just weren't moved by it. They didn't really care. They were, they were more concerned about what's going on in their lives. And the religious leaders, even worse, they knew the scriptures. They knew Daniel 9. And instead, what they were doing is they were drawing men and women to themselves. They didn't want the glory to be given to God. They want men and women to get it, right? No, they wanted them to, to take it all. And, and so he, in verse 20, as we're going to read, please understand that's the context we're going into this already. That 
He's already dealt with the religious leaders. He's already dealt with the, uh, the issue of idolatry. That's what we're talking about here. And then he's going to bring it very straightforward. He says, look, it's not anyone, a believer or unbeliever. No one can fool God. He knows the heart. He knows our thoughts. And in some ways, that's incredibly comforting. And for some, probably unnerving. But for most, incredibly comforting. Because even when we blow it, he knows the intention was not to blow it. And he loves us. And so much mercy and grace goes forward because of that. But he also knows when there's spies in the midst. When there's, you know, haters and fakers that way. Those that are pretending and, you know, if they had come to him with the right heart and said, hey, Lord, you know, we've blown this. We want reconciliation. I know Jesus would have met them right where they're at. And I think every one of us here knows that, too. We know our God. He would have met them right where they were at. But instead, they come to entrap him. They want to ensnare him because this is some three to four days before the crucifixion. They want to murder him. They know they don't have the ability under Jewish law to carry out a death sentence on their own. They know they need Rome's help. And the only way they can get Rome to do that is to label him some kind of a terrorist. And that's exactly what they're going to be up to. And that's why he calls them spies and they're going to incite this, this whole uprising. And it's all, all because Jesus Christ was setting men and women free, not putting them in bondage. And the religious leaders and those in authority at the time couldn't stand it because they wanted to ensnare and entrap a people. And I'll tell you what, 2,000 years later, it is still happening today in cults and religious circles all around the world, men and women being trapped and ensnared by an alternate false gospel. Let's pray this morning and ask the Lord to anoint his word and go before us. Father, we do thank you. We thank you that we gather in your name, in your name alone, Lord. We thank you for your holy word that you lift higher than your very name, as it says in your scripture. But Lord, as we come in here, we don't want to be pretenders. We don't want to play church or play Christian, Lord. We come in here because we need you, Jesus. We want to, we want to receive more of you. We want to walk in your statutes, commandments, and judgments. And we need strength to do that, Lord. We're so inadequate, Lord. Imperfect people. I know we're a new creation. And the old things have passed away and all things have become new. But Lord, it is, it is sometimes difficult and lonely, Lord. As we stand in the gap, well, it looks like, just like you experienced 2,000 years ago, the world is indifferent. And yet you had the greatest truth, the greatest gift of salvation through your work on the cross, Lord. And today, 2,000 years later, we haven't forgotten it. We'll never forget it. It has changed us. We're never going to be the same because of it. So, Lord, I just pray that you anoint your word here this morning. I pray that, Lord, you set hearts and minds free. I pray, Lord, you calibrate us. If there's, if there's been condemnation, Lord, it's time to let that go. That's not from you, Jesus. But if there's time of conviction, maybe writing of hearts here this morning, of minds, Lord, we welcome that. We want that. We need that, Lord. Truth is such a high priority today, and yet, God, outside of your word, it is so very difficult to find. So we turn our attention to you, my Lord. Let us have eyes and ears to see and hear and a heart really ready to receive. And Lord, we pray just have your way in us, Lord Jesus Christ, ever decreasing in our end and you ever increasing in our lives. And maybe there's someone that doesn't know you here, the Lord, this morning. I pray you prick their heart and they let, let them know how they're loved. And this is no coincidence how you've been waiting for them to come home. We ask this in your mighty name, Jesus Christ, and God's children pray. Amen. So if you look with me at chapter 20, verse 20, please, in the book of Luke. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they may seize him on his words in order to deliver him up to the power and authority of the governor. Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say that, and you teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. It is, is it lawful for us to pay uh, taxes to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Why do you test me? Show me a denarius whose image, underline the word image for me there, please, an inscription does it have? They answered and said, Caesar's. 
And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. But they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people, and they marveled at his answer and kept silent. So we begin to read here, and as the Lord and the Holy Spirit laid out for us, in verse 20, he makes it very clear right out of the beginning, this is nefarious. They're pretending to be righteous. They're, they're, they're spies. They're undercover that way, all to expose Jesus Christ, to make him look the fool and even worse, the terrorist, before all the people to make him look crazy and like he's a national threat to safety and security, in which case they want to murder him and eliminate him so that they can turn around and continue to fleece sheep, okay? And that's exactly what was going on here. And it says that they pretended to be righteous, that they may seize on his words. The idea here is to find something incremental or to, to somehow take the littlest thing and twist it. That's the idea in the Greek here. Something to seize, to hold on to, to twist, to manipulate in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. Then they asked him, saying, teacher. Now the flattery begins and just the flat out lies. They didn't feel this in their heart. We know that you say and teach rightly. Really? Then why don't you believe? And you do not show personal favoritism. And, and that is true. He never did and never does. But teach the way of God in truth. Boy, they're laying it on super heavy right now, huh? Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They couldn't wait to get that question out because they're sitting there going, I got him. Because no one under the sun other than the Lord himself would know how to answer this so perfectly to really draw the, out what the real issue is at the moment. And how do we know that? Because as we continue to read in verse 23, God makes it so we cannot miss it. But he perceived their craftiness. He knows what's in their heart. He knows in their minds what they're up to. No one, again, can fool God. Not, not a single one of us sitting here this morning can play church or play Christian. We may fool each other. We're not fooling our Lord. Why do you test me? Why are you doing this? Do you not know that I know? He says, I know. Show me a denarius. Very interesting. He didn't ask him for a Jewish shekel. Did you catch that? He asked for a Roman coin. Remember, there was no paper money back in that day. Rome didn't have paper money. They had coins. They, they didn't have paper dollars that way. And he looks at it and he says, whose image and inscription does it have? That's everything. Some of you are thinking, I don't get it, Pastor. I don't know why you're dwelling on that. What are you talking about? In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, he says, I created the male and female in the image of who? Of God. He now takes a coin and shows them the coin. These religious leaders who, by the way, know the scriptures and know Genesis 1, 26 and 1, 27, and I believe very clearly know exactly what he's doing. He's showing them the inscription. Whose inscription is this? Who is your loyalty to? Who is your master? Are you serving this Caesar? Are you giving the Caesar your life? Or are you giving it to the one true God? Is this idolatry? As he looks at the religious leaders, and I'm just very clear, he's, I have no doubt he's looking at them right in the eyes because they're testing him. And now he's bringing this back around and testing their hearts. Who do you, who do you serve? We know in other scriptures he tells us very clearly, you cannot have two masters. You will hate one and you will love the other. This is a point, a very clear demarcation point. He's about to go to the cross. They're standing, they're looking at this, and I imagine they're thinking right now, what did he just do? Whose image and inscription does it have? Can't miss it. Can't deny it's Caesar. I will also say at that time, it's very clearly documented extra biblically, first and second century. Christians were most, some of the most law-abiding law -abiding citizens that was found in all of Rome. They paid their taxes on time. They didn't turn around and uh, fleece other people that way. Their word was yes, their no was no. Very well known for being good citizens. If the government says we're going to do this, this okay, fine. Until, and as always practiced as we see in the book of Acts, 
until it went contrary to the word of God. The minute they said, no, 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 we're not going to, you're going to worship Caesar and you're not going to worship Jesus Christ or you're not going to speak of the name of Christ. We read in the book of Acts, they put him in prison. Remember that? Peter and James, they got out and they said, well, we, we'll let you out, but we don't want you doing this anymore. And what did Peter and James respond? Well, you, you, you know, whether this is right or wrong before the Lord, he says, for us, we're going to profess the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, you might as well just put us right back in here because we're going to be about our father's business and nothing's going to change that. And that was a direct defiance against the government, wasn't it, at that time? People wrestle with that even today, don't they? You know, I, I want you to think of all the political aspects of that, right? I don't get political. I don't need to. The Lord didn't get political. He didn't need to. He simply taught truth. And here, there's a decision. Who are you going to render? And that what he says, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Who are you going to serve? Who are you going to give to? Who are you going to give your life away to? He's drawing the fact that, are you going to give it to the government? Or are you going to give your life to God and the things that belong to God? After all, you claim to be a Christian, or in their case, you, you, you claim to believe in God 2,000 years ago as he was saying this to them, the religious leaders of all people. So he, he ensnared them with the very trap that they meant to ensnare him with by demonstrating and getting them to, whether it's verbal or nonverbal, admit the idolatry in their heart, that they would rather serve man than serve the one true God, Messiah, who they had waited 483 years, 173,880 days, which began right around 445 BC. If you take 483 years, it was prophesied through Daniel 9 exactly to this point. And here he is, Messiah, standing right before them. And they're willfully rejecting him. And so he calls them to a decision point. Who are you going to follow? I'd like to think all of us in this room have made that decision already. The idea is not so much about the money. It's about the inscription and the image on the money. What possesses you and who possesses you, if you could say it that way. Right? You all have quarters in your pocket probably and you have a president on some dollar bills and other things like that. Money's not the problem, is it? It's never been the problem. It's the motive of heart. It's the how. It's not the how much or the what. What's your identity? What's your image? Are you being conformed to the likeness and image of Jesus Christ? Or is the propensity to be conformed to the likeness and image of things of the world? You will be one or the other. That's what my Bible tells me. I will be one or the other. There is no middle ground. But they could not catch him. In his words, in the presence of the people, all the people who heard this, they, they, they marveled, right? And they marveled at his answer and they kept silent. They were furious, furious that they couldn't entrap him. It's fine. You want to use money to further the kingdom of God? You can do that. Nothing sinful about that. But don't let, don't give your life to any false God. Only to the one true God, Jesus Christ. The Sadducees, they're up next, right? So they're, they're getting ready to get up to bat. Okay, they figure we're going to do this better than obviously these Pharisees and other religious leaders have. So they're going to give it a, a try. Now, the Sadducees are very interesting. You think about them from a political sect. They're the theological of what we would say today, maybe the theological liberals of the day. So you think of more of the liberals, and if I kind of, kind of can label it that way, that's where they were. They're materialists. They do not believe in the supernatural. Uh, they were also known as uh, modernists. We use the word postmodern today. And the idea of they would have been known as modernists of their time, okay? They didn't believe in anything that they couldn't understand, and they were incredibly uh, good at self-worship. <laughs> they loved the best places. They loved drawing attention to themselves. They didn't even believe in the resurrection, Okay, they didn't believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in angels. And yet these were the religious leaders. And they made up one of two parties, if you could say it that way, the Pharisees and Sadducees, which compromised the whole Sanhedrin. 
And the Sanhedrin was the elect of 70 men that served almost like what our Supreme Court would be, kind of the law of the land of that day in the nation of Israel. And so you had half of them that really didn't even believe in an afterlife or didn't even believe in the things of the scriptures. And I'll throw one other thing in there that'll be important as we read today, a little extra information. They also only subscribe to the first five books, the Pentateuch, of the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, you know, the first five books of the Bible, they didn't, they didn't acknowledge or believe anything else biblically but these first five books. Then some of the Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection, again, that's what it's all about, please underline that, came to him and asked him, saying, teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother, man's brother dies having a wife and he dies without children, his brother should take up his wife and raise up an offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers and the first took a wife and died without children and the second took her as a wife and he died childless and the third took her and in like manner the seven also. And they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. And Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of the sage marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being the sons of the resurrection. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord of the, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he's not the God of the dead, but, the, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. But after that, they dared not question him anymore. So what's happening here? Round two. Okay, round one didn't work out so well. Round two, uh, these Sadducees are up. Uh, they deny the resurrection. It's brought right out, the afterlife. Uh, they're supposed to be spiritual leaders within the nation of Israel, and yet they're not teaching the entire counsel of God. I know that's hard for you to understand living in this day anymore, that there are men and women, or men particularly, that would stand behind a pulpit and not teach the gospel or the word of God. I know that's hard for, I'm being cynical. I, I think we all get that, and it's very alarming at the rate at which that's happening today. What we read here, and very clearly, is they are using Moses because they only believe in the Pentateuch. So they're not going to quote the prophets. They're not going to quote anything else other than Moses particularly. Maybe they could have gone to some other aspects of this, Joshua maybe. But, but the point is they turned around and, and they said, well, Moses you know, wrote to us that if we have man, man's brother dies having a wife, then he dies without children, what, what are we going to do here? Because the idea behind that also traditionally, and, and it was for a very good reason, was that if you had someone, a male particularly, you didn't have a male offspring because inheritance rights were patched down through the male line that way. And every 50 years in the nation of Israel, you had Jubilee. All items would return back to the rightful owner. Also in seven years, debt was released that way every seven years too. So what, if you didn't have a male offspring, initially the idea is what do we do? Because after all, God had divided this territory of Israel up the land to the tribes of Israel. And it's to rightly go back to those tribes. You, you see the problem and why Moses was so declarative in how this was done. We even read in the Pentateuch, by the way, what happens when there was no offspring? Moses goes to the Lord because there was a daughter. This daughter is plural, actually. And they said, we don't have it. What do we do about this? And the Lord came to Moses. He says, you know what? Give it to the daughters. The offspring will pass down that way. It's still going to stay within the tribe. But what they were worried about was the intermarrying. If a daughter married another person, another Jew from another tribe in Israel, then it could cross-pollinate the inheritance rights. So you see how that could kind of get messy and, and everything like that, especially every seven or 50 years, more importantly, when everything was supposed to go back to the original tribes, okay? So this is why this was brought. What they're doing is they're exploiting or taking this to a place that is very uncommon. They're saying that, okay, uh, uh, a brother dies. At that time, there's no security or support system for the widow. 
um, she was all but dead. I, I don't know how else to say it any, any sweeter than that. There was no separate housing or something like that. There was no social security system that would come through to help that widow. Um, and many times, even in the church, if she wasn't willing to uh, be a part of the church, they wouldn't support her in any capacity, okay? So often they would be, uh, widows would, female widows would be homeless and, and many times they would die of starvation. And, and it's, it's incredibly, I don't know about you, I find it incredibly deplorable and wicked. And I'm so glad Jesus Christ uh, spoke very highly of women and the regard for women. In Genesis 126 and 127, he did that right in the beginning. He says, I made the male and female in the likeness and image of God. The idea is one's not better than the other. We just have different offices, different responsibilities or authorities that way. And so he clearly is playing off that, this, this, uh, these Sadducees, and they're trying to ensnare him. They're trying to entrap him, saying, well, what are you going to do? How do you follow this? Jesus, you're a righteous man. You say you know the word. How do you play this out? The only problem is what? They didn't read their Bible. They didn't read their Bible. They misrepresented the scripture, as a matter of fact, by not even looking at the very words. They quoted the words of Moses, but then they ignored the very fact that Moses, when God appeared to him in a burning bush, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He didn't say, I'm the God of the dead, but I'm the God of the living. In other words, they're alive. And if you read Hebrews, we all know here, right? I understand that, you know, Hebrews wasn't written at this time. But as we understand today, that all and always, even in the Old Testament saints, their salvation was always based by faith and accounted to righteousness because of their faith in God. That's, that's never changed. That it's not just because we're in a new covenant um, that somehow that has changed. That has been all the way through the old and the new covenant. Same God, salvation. Okay? So they're trying to bring this out. And say, what do you do? And because she's married all of these different men and had tried to have children and none of them could produce offspring. When they get to, you know, if they have heaven, because Jesus preached paradise, right? He talked about hell. He talked about heaven. And they've overheard that. Then they say, well, then how does it work out there? So they're trying to sort of twofold set him up. One, prove that there is no afterlife because they don't believe in the resurrection, right? They're trying to prove their point and that's their sect. And probably looking at the Pharisees like I told you, you know, so some of that's infighting too. But then the other aspect of it is they're trying to debunk anything that Christ is trying to, to do here. And they're trying to make him look like a fool. But God, in verse 34, he says, no. He says, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. He's talking about this age. What is this age? The Bible also speaks about that in Revelation. When we think about the church age, chapter 2, well, chapters 2 and 3, go through the seven churches. We are living in that age. It's called the church age. This age will not last forever. Eventually, there will be an end to this epoch or age, Right? So he's talking here about the age also in the, in the respect to human beings on the earth. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to attain by what? By the blood of Jesus Christ, that age and the resurrection from the dead, because he's the first fruits of the resurrection, isn't he? We read, neither marry nor are given in marriage. So right out of the gate, their, their presumption or their understanding is not right. Nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being the sons of the resurrection. Now, this had to be hard for the Sadducees to hear, because what don't they believe in? Angels, the supernatural, the afterlife. So he just, not, like with one sentence, he just took out three of their unbeliefs or three of their, their misrepresentation of God and or the scriptures and knocks each one out of the park. First of all, angels, they're real, right? Second one, there's a heaven. And third one, I'm the first fruits of the resurrection and there's no one that's going to come to the Father but through before me. One sentence, one phrase. My God is not grammatically challenged. He turned around and he... He makes it clear. Now, he says something very interesting. He says, we're going to be equal to angels. Now, anybody who's ever studied angelology or systematic theology, and you look at angels, he's not saying that, he's talking about like substance, okay? Uh, you, if you've tended here for a while, you know I, I, I've broken it down just as a way of understanding. I think it helps me. Maybe, maybe it'll help you. When I think of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, when I look at their substance, right, three in one, we understand the triune God, Elohim, plurality, but if I asked any one of us here, well, explain to me how all that works exactly, you know, and how we divide the substance, yet they're three in one. I think most of us would kind of go, blah, 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 you know, 
I, I certainly can't and won't try my lack of understanding or limitation on this side of heaven. I, I possibly can't. What I do understand, though, from Scripture is that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are eternal beings. They're eternal. They were never created. They always existed, right? And that part makes up their nature, their substance that way, if I can define it. Angels were what? Created beings. They are immortal. They don't die, all right? They, they don't die that way. They were all created on the day of cre in creation where, you know, there's debate on which day of creation, but nonetheless, they were created at that time. I don't believe, and I find nowhere in scripture that there's like an angel machine up there where he's like, da -da 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 -da, you know, keeps popping angels out. Like, I think all the angels that would ever be were created at one point. Um, I've studied angelology. I encourage you to be Bereans, but I see nothing in scripture that says that there's a continuation of the, da -da -da -da, you know, the angel machine up there. But they were created and they are immortal beings. They don't die. We were created that way originally, weren't we? In, in the garden. Adam and Eve, they didn't die. You know, I'm, I'm sure some of you heard that they have belly butt, you know, the whole thing. Oh, yeah, you know, trying to stump, you know. We don't know. We don't know. Why are we even talking about that? The reality is God created them as immortal beings, but they sinned. We all understand Genesis 3, if we read our Bibles. Sin entered this world. Uh, we understand a, we're, we're living in a fallen world. Our nature had changed even at that time. We longer, uh, Genesis chapter 5, we're no longer creating the image of, uh, of uh, Adam that way. Or excuse me, I would say God. We're now creating the image of Seth after Adam, right? And it's not till we're saved again that we're back in the likeness image of Jesus Christ. I encourage you to read Genesis chapter 5 again on that. But he, what he's saying here is that, that we would be immortal. And isn't that what we read in Corinthians as well? That this... Mortality must put on immortality. This corruption must put on incorruption, right? It's the same idea of what Jesus Christ is saying here. It's not any different. He's saying that is what he means when he says we're like the angel. We're like angels that way, if I can say it. Equal, sorry, to angels, let me say it. We're immortal. We're not going to be marrying up there. The marriage you have on this earth will cease to exist. Uh, the covenant, let me put it that way, when you are with your father in heaven, when we're with the Lord in heaven. I'm not saying you won't recognize that person. I'm not saying there won't be a unique spiritual connection. Uh, I'm not saying any of that. I don't think anyone can. I actually believe there will be. But I know that I want to be careful because I don't want to misrepresent God. I know there will not be marriages in heaven. I know that uh, the saints will not be marrying in heaven. There won't be procreation, procreating in heaven that way. That's what he's bringing out here. But he goes on, he says in verse 37, but even as Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when they called the Lord God of Abraham. Why is it significant that he's quoting Exodus chapter 3 verses uh, 6 and on here? Why is it significant that it's a book of Exodus? Because what book, or what books, plural, only five of them, did the Sadducees believe? In the Pentateuch, the first five books, right? He quotes the very scripture. I think this is an important understanding. Many times when we're, we're discussing uh, spiritual things with maybe even like-minded believers or maybe unbelievers, so often I, I believe what happens, uh, I've been part of those uh, conversations. I've watched you be part of those conversations as we've done outreaches and different things. So often when we have, and I'm thinking years past, I think of Jubilee Day and things like that. So often when you would come up or I would come up and we want to talk to someone and we want to tell them about Jesus or we want to discuss certain things about the Lord, they say, well, I don't, I don't really believe in the Bible. And the very first thing they want you to do is put the Bible away. If you want to talk to me about history, I'll, I'll listen to that. If you want to talk to me about writings from other people, extra biblically, I'll even, I'll even entertain those. Science, absolutely, as though science is the author and God isn't. All of these, start filling in the blank. What is the very commonality, the very thing that you find in common in all of that? It's to take you and try to get you to take the very foundation of Scripture and throw it out. That's the ploy. That's the ploy it's always been. Hence why it's not in the public schools. Hence why prayer's not there. Hence why in most church, I don't say most, some, I'll use some churches today, the Bible's not taught any longer. Or they may take a verse or two here, but they don't go through the whole counsel of God. Is that all coincidence? Or is that deliberate? I suggest to you, it's very deliberate. 
Now, I'm not saying the man or the person up at the pulpit is aware of it. I'm pleased. I'm not implying I don't know everybody's hearts. But I can tell you that the enemy is very deliberate in wanting people to forsake their Bibles, their scriptures, their teaching in the Word of God. Do you realize in scripture it says that Jesus Christ, that the Word of God is lifted higher than his very name? And we talk about all the power and authority in the name of Christ, and yet the Word of God, it says, is lifted higher than the very name of Christ. This is an anchor. This is foundational. And they know the enemy and the demons. and They know the world, the flesh, the devil. They all know that if they can get you to undermine this, or they can undermine this, then they can begin to, work, to, to manipulate or to give you man's wisdom, and they can twist and do a lot of creative things. Exactly what these Sadducees were trying to do. Galatians 1.6 says, Beware of an alternate gospel church. He was talking to the church, one of the earliest churches in Scripture in Galatia. Be careful, an alternate gospel. And that's what we're seeing all over the place. And so he says, hey, don't you know this? And he goes back and he doesn't, he's not rude. He doesn't say like, you know, like I would say, hey, don't you know this? Don't you know your Bible? You're religious leaders. Like you're teaching here. You should know the word of God. He's so gracious. He doesn't Bible thump anybody. He just says, oh, let, you know, Exodus chapter three, verse six, you know, um, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. For he's, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living right? For all live to him. What do you think that did? That immediately silenced the Sadducees because they didn't have a single thing to stand on. Why? Because Jesus Christ went, Christ went right back to the word of God. It's the very strength we have. Don't ever, ever give up the truth of scripture for anybody's perception or opinions or wisdom. I don't care who they are. Jesus Christ himself could have said, I said so. How many parents in here have you done that? Your kids have asked you, why do you need to do that? Because I said so. It's as quick, it's easy, it's right to the point. I said so, right? Jesus didn't do that. He could have even said, because my father said so. But he didn't do that, did he? No, he went back to scripture and he says, the word of God says, my word says, the very word that you claim to believe, this is what it really says. You can't take some of it and not all of it. When you do that, you manipulate, you twist the scriptures, and you come up with a, a misunderstanding at best, nefariously, an absolute twist and manipulation of the scriptures. Then some of the scribes, in hearing these things, I think the point was clear. They don't respond. The Sadducees are just kind of looking at each other like, what can we say? He went to the very book that we were quoting and he actually gave us the word of God that substantiates why he believes in the resurrection and we say we don't. We have a real problem. In verse 39, then the scribes answered and said, well, teacher, well said, you know, basically, you have spoken well. They don't disagree with him. But after they, that, they dared not question him anymore. Why the scribes? Because the scribes of that day, what were they? They were the copyists. They were the ones that wrote out Torah. They were the ones that wrote out the Pentateuch over and over again. And I'm, I'm sure the, maybe the Sadducees, maybe some of them were going, does it say that? I hope they weren't, but maybe they were. <laughs> no, they're religious leaders, right? It happens, you know, we forget things, right? Okay. But, but no, he says the scribes, they literally goes back. He says, we're the copies. He says, no, it's, it's exactly what they're saying. And he uses the first, he uses the first of the five books to do it. And he does it all publicly. At this point, you would think everything should have ceased. You would think all of the challenging and the lines of questions should have ceased. But Jesus isn't done yet because he is so gracious. He's using this as an opportunity, their misunderstanding as an opportunity to give the truth of the gospel. Truth is in high demand today. And dare I say, even in churches, I know you keep hearing me harp on that because I want the church, I want all of us, the bride of Christ, we're part of this. This is the body of Christ. It's our Lord's. I want us to wake up and I want us to tell those loved ones or friends ones, maybe they fellowship, hey, you don't have to, you don't have to go after the substitute. Go right to the genuine. The substitute's never as good as the genuine article, the, the word of God. Nothing will ever compete perfectly with that. Nothing. Why are you settling? When God has given you the riches, his God breathed, he says, it's, it's his alive, it's his word, there's nothing else like it. Why would you ever play and dabble with anything else that's just a waste of your time, a waste of my time, right? It's so beautiful and perfect. He goes on in verse 41, and he said to them, 
How can they say, and I, and I love this as he comes back to this here, because what's the real underlying problem in all of it? It's not just the fact that they didn't, they misrepresented God again, and that's maybe an accident, okay, nefarious, maybe worse. But what's the real problem? He already alluded to it in earlier chapters when he said, today is your day of visitation. And they didn't get it, or they were indifferent to it. Like, they didn't care. You know, again, 483 years, uh, 173,880 days from 445, 32, um, you know, A.D. It was prophesied, Daniel, it had an expiration date in Daniel 9, and it's very clear. And yet the people, when he's riding in, you know, Asahana, Hosanna, you know, worshiping, save now, and very quickly we notice that's going to change to crucify him, crucify him. But they were indifferent. They, they weren't expectant. They didn't believe. They weren't holding on to the word of God. They were just flirting with it. How can they say that Christ is the son of David? This is very, very important what he's, he's drawing. Because the problem is they didn't believe he was Messiah. They weren't acknowledging the signs of the times. They weren't looking at who he was. They were still focused on the identity crisis. They weren't believing the truth. Now, David himself said in the book of Psalms, and he quotes Psalm 110 here, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, we read that, and you might be saying, well, I don't get what the point is here. The Lord, see how it says L-O-R-D in your Bibles, even in your translations? This is speaking of the Father, the Godhead, okay? In, in the Hebrew and or the Greek, depending on what translation you would look um, at this if it was translated back over to Hebrew or if you're just looking at a Septuagint either way in the Greek, it's talking about the Godhead. And he says to my Lord, capital L-O-R-D, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How then is he the son? Why is that a problem? Because the Jewish people didn't believe that Jesus could be what? The son of God. They didn't believe God had a son. They didn't want to acknowledge that. That was the whole problem in their line. Of, they would rather stick with their tradition and their line of reasoning and their understanding of things than to admit and understand what God had already, you know, already said in Psalm 110. And that it's possible because he said, look, he called him Lord. Other, either that or, which they would have acknowledged David, right? King David, certainly not you know, similar to Abraham, the father of Israel. They would have held King David in high, high accolades that way. If this isn't accurate, then what did David just commit? He committed idolatry because he just called another human being that isn't the God-man, Lord, the master. But he is. Jesus is everything he said he was. He is Messiah. He is the son of God. And he's the savior. He's everything he ever said and all the scripture ever said about him. Jesus is exactly who he says he is and who the scriptures say he is. Then in the hearing of all the people, he said to the disciples, be aware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace, the best seats in the synagogues and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers that they will receive greater condemnation. A little bit more heavy here. I mean, really there's no way to explain away this passage and what God is trying to do in conviction to these religious leaders. He now says it, and he says it to the disciples, but he says it so everyone can hear it. He says, beware of the scribes. He says, beware of these men that copy the scriptures and they, they go and do all the right things. They look like they're doing all the right things, but inward, you know, their hearts are far from him. Their lips profess my name, but my, their hearts are far from me, as he said in other places in scripture. He desires to go around in long robes, loves greeting in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts. He says they devour widows' houses and make, for a pretense, make long prayers. You know, they're holy and righteous. He says, but they're going to receive a greater condemnation. Why would he be telling them just to be aware of that? He was drawing attention. This is what religion does that's produced by man. Every single time. When you see religion practiced by man, I don't care what man it is or any man, because of the wickedness of, and depravity of a human heart, 
when he begins to draw men and or women after himself, he is immediately going to build himself up and he is going to love for pride all of these things, long robes, you know, as though he's somehow you know, sophisticated or he's arrived. Greetings in the marketplace. Oh, it's so good that, you know, oh, you know, let's give you homage and and, and worship that way. Best seats in the synagogue. Put him in the front. He's got to be in the front. Everybody's got to know him, notice him. Feasts. Oh, come sit at the best table at the restaurant. Come sit, come sit in the window seat. We want you to have the best view. After all, you're, you're a servant of the Lord, right? And then widow's houses. The people that should be most protected, the widows. We just talked about how significant the widows are, that there was no provisions financially. There was nothing like that in in the nation of Israel. There was no social security or something like that to protect them. These are the most vulnerable people of the population, children and widows. And these are the very people that the religious leaders preyed upon. This broke God's heart. To see them doing this. It breaks God's heart to see it happen today. Because there's still men fleecing God's sheep. You know, you, you can turn on the TV. You can watch these things. You know, send me your, we'll send you a little bottle of uh, water. We're going to call it holy. And you send us your million dollars. And we'll, we'll call that a fair deal. I told you, ask them, hey, you want a blessing? Send me a million dollars and I'll bless you. I don't think you're going to get a check in the mail. You know, people are afraid to stand up and say that. Why? It should be called out. It's an exploitation. It's fleecing sheep. It's evil and wicked. And there's no place for it in the church, in God's church. What they would do in the idea in that day is when someone had died, a widow and the woman was there, if there was anything left, what they would do is they would go up and they would sit with the widow And in her most vulnerable time, because she just lost her husband, so she's wrecked, she's hurt like that. And they would come up and say, you know, you really love the Lord. You know, your husband was a good man. He loved the Lord. If you really love the Lord, and what are they doing? They're trying to squeeze their way into the inheritance. Oh, by the way, not the temple, not the synagogue, which that would be wrong altogether anyway. Individually. They're trying to individually have their name submitted and entered into so to speak, the will. So that when that woman died, that they personally took the wealth. Not that they gave it to the Lord or to the temple or the synagogue. Do do you see how extreme this is and how wicked and evil? I mean, even an unsaved world doesn't do that. And yet these religious leaders were doing things like that and God's aware of it. He saw what they were doing and they're not fooling anybody. And then, obviously, these long prayers. And, but this is, what, this is what religion produces with a man, with a selfish heart. This is, this, is, this is anybody that's given to themselves or to religion and not to Jesus Christ. I'm not, I don't want to just beat up on the, the, the scribes here. I want us to understand every man can put himself in this situation because of a depraved heart. And I don't know about you, but that is a form of protection. Never say, I'll not do something. The minute you say it, guess what? You're going you're gonna to find that. I don't want to say it like thus say it the Lord. But you often will find yourself in that temptation. I never say those things. I, maybe when I was younger, I never say those things any longer. Because I know without Jesus Christ, I can't do anything. And I'll fall for every temptation. I'll fall for, uh, look, right? Pray for me. I'm a mess. I don't know. But Maybe I'm like you. You know, I think we're all the same, aren't we? We're like-minded. We're humans. Leave to myself, left to myself. What good am I going to do? I'm just being honest. I mean, it's the Lord. It's staying close to the Lord. It's it's having God's mind. It's it's having God's heart through these things. So I don't do the very things that I think about doing, and I don't act upon them. And even more so, I eventually don't even think those thoughts because I rebuke them in the name of Jesus Christ. Because I assure you, there's not a single person here that hasn't lusted. You'd all be liars. I'd be a liar. There's not a single person here that hasn't committed murder, according to God's definition of hating in heart. You've looked at somebody, I don't like that, blah, 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 this, that, and the other. Like, why are we pretending? Like, why are we doing that as a church? It doesn't help us or our situation. We need to recognize our inadequacies and call upon God for strength and help because he is victorious and he will help us overcome. And we will not fall prey when we give it to the Lord. 
these will receive a greater condemnation. It makes me think of James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach the Bible, we will be judged more strictly. If you're a pastor, teacher, and elder in here, you ought to have that verse memorized. I don't know about you. I think about it often. I think about it often because I am not perfect. Like uh, you, you all know that. I'm not telling you you don't know. But I think about that because I handle the word of God. I never want to misrepresent God. And I know that there's no get out of jail card for this. When I stand before Jesus Christ, I will give an account for the things that I misrepresented God if I did that. And, and, and I don't know, from the reverence or the fear of that, it changes hearts. It changes my heart. And I pray it does the same thing for you because all of you can handle the word of God as well. I understand he's speaking here to those in, in, in uh, uh, you know, called to ministry full-time. I understand what he's saying, but I'm also saying we all are a royal priesthood. We all handle the word of God. We all share it with other people. How are we living that testimony out? And he looked up and he saw the rich, and this is going to seem like, where did this come from? And he looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasure, and he saw also a certain poor widow putting into might. So he said, truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all, for all of these out of their abundance have put in their offerings for God, but she out of her poverty had put in all her livelihood that she had. Again, you know, a similar account, parallel account in Mark chapter 12, um, verses 41 through 44. You read this, and I don't know about you, you know, if I'm reading and I'm following along, it's, where did this come from? It just kind of, like the Holy Spirit just went, and popped this in. But when I stay in context, again, as he just has been revealing about, first of all, whose image are you serving? Who, who are you being conformed in likeness and image of? That was the coin. That's how we, how we began, right? Render. Then he took us through the Sadducees, and he taught us about the importance of not misrepresenting Scripture and being um, submitted to the word of God, submitted to God, and he's sovereign, understanding that aspect, okay? And then he took us to the scribes. He says, beware, there's men that are going to be nefarious. They're going to have alternative means, and it's all about what they can personally gain. In all of that, what is he describing? The motives of men and women's hearts. Because he says he sees all, he knows all. And he sees these things. And I can't help but thinking, again, Mark's gospel, he's sitting down, he's looking at these, probably not where he was before. He probably was in the outer courts of the Gentiles because he says the public could have heard. They would have not been allowed further in that into the temple. So I think now he's kind of more in the area where it would have been maybe just the court of the Jews where they were able to come into. I believe that because he wouldn't have had the public in that place. They wouldn't have been allowed to come that far into the temple. And so just to set the, 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 the video in your mind, what that looks like. So they're in this, this court, right? And I want you to understand, it's not like they passed a plate, just like we don't pass a plate at Calvary Chapel right here, right? You know, we have agape boxes. There's one outside, there's one there, one, you know, different places throughout the church. You guys know what those are. You, you, you use them and what have you. I use them, okay? That's what they're for, okay? In the temple, it was different. In the temple, you, you guys know what a trumpet, you've seen trumpets. Take, think of a trumpet if you turn it upside down so that the horn or the bell of the trumpet is facing down. And then what happens is it kind of almost like an upside down funnel, it narrows as it comes up. So when you would put, remember they didn't have paper dollars, so when you would take a coin, I don't care how careful you were, if you tried to put a coin in there, it's going to go through this narrow flute to this wide area. So not only are you going to hear this noise kind of like bing, you know, I don't know what noise effect to make sound a change going, but you, you under, you're tracking with me. First service, I struggled with it well. You'd think I'd better be better prepared second service, but whatever that sound is, the, 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 you know, um, eventually it would hit the bottom where you hear the change and again, it would it sound like change, you know, plunk or whatever that change sound sounds like. Why are you watching me struggle? You're just sitting there laughing. I'm looking at your faces. Some of you I know, I'm looking at you. I'm like, come on. You know what I'm trying to say. It makes the noise. They're watching it. Jesus is sitting there. What is so significant about this? Because again, in a few days, three, four, he's going to be crucified. He's going to Calvary. And he's just taking this all in. I mean, they rejected him on his triumphal entry. The religious leaders are rejecting the fact that he's Messiah and that he's even the son of God. And now he's sitting there. And imagine he's probably just taking his thoughts, he's praying, and now walks in this widow. 
He sees all these guys, you know, and you know, who have this abundance of money, and, and again, they're you know, whatever sound that makes for the coins. And then all of a sudden this woman, they you know, she comes up. Dink, dink. And he sees right into her heart. And he knows this woman just gave everything she has. She didn't keep anything back. She didn't keep money for the rent. She didn't keep money to pay her bills. She didn't keep money to eat. I'm not saying everyone's to do this. This is what she was being called to do. She went in with own willingness. Nobody turned around and, you know, berated her at the door. Hey, you need to give this. No, no, no. You know, churches, some churches you walk in like that, right? You got to put your wallet in your front pocket, right? You know what I mean? Come on. Some churches I visit, I'm like, okay, I'm putting it in the front and I'm watching people, you know? But I mean, literally, like, no, that wasn't the situation. This woman wasn't like that at all. She turned around and she pudding, pudding, and it drops beautifully in there. And he looks right into her heart and he sees this beautiful simplicity because it was never about the quantity. It was always about the how, the motive of the heart, how she did it. And I can't help but thinking this is an incredible encouragement to Jesus as he knows he's about to go and be crucified. And he's sitting there and he's, look, he's God and he's human, right? We read that 100% of both. You don't think in his mind, I, I can't put that in there, but you don't think I would have been thinking, Lord, I'm going to go and I'm going to give my life for these people that don't even, they're all rejecting me. Look at them. They're only giving you what they have extra of. They're not giving anything of sacrifice to you. They're commanded to do it. And they're not even doing that right, Lord. Because what's the bottom line? What's he really looking beyond the money? He's looking at the heart and he wants all of their heart. And he just looks at the beauty of that and he sees this woman, again, the most vulnerable woman, this poor woman. And it's not, you know, all that noise. It's, you know, these mites, right? We know two mites would have been, uh, in that day, it, it would have been a half a penny. A half a penny, okay? Today, equivocal standard would have been a dollar fifty. If I did my math right, it would have been about a buck fifty to maybe two dollars. That's everything she had. Nothing else in the bank, nothing else at home, nothing in the cupboard, nothing like that. This was this woman's entire life saving inheritance, everything else since she's been widowed. And it's a dollar fifty. And she literally takes that dollar fifty, what we would say today, and she just says, Lord, I trust you. You know the kind of faith that takes? This woman understands God is sovereign. That he's not gonna have, she's not going to have to worry about how her bills are going to have to be paid. She's not having a, 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 faith, a crisis of faith moment where she's worrying about, well, Lord, I, you know, what am I going to eat today? I got to go back home. I got to pay rent. I got to, you know, what am I going to do? She's not worrying about any of that. Because if you are the God who you say you are, Lord, I give it all to you and I trust you will take care of me in whatever that looks like, whether that means bringing me home now or letting me occupy until you are faithful and sovereign and it's settled in my heart. It's settled completely in my heart to where I will even deny self and I hold on nothing. I'll have no insurance. I'll have nothing to hold back. Now, I'm not saying go sell your insurance plans. That's not what this is saying. You get the point here. Truly, I say to you that this poor widow has put more than all, more than anybody else. Because a sacrifice has to cost you something. Otherwise, it's not really a sacrifice, is it? For being honest with each other, is it? Giving is our form of worship. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God out of abundance means, yeah, people are dropping 2,000, 3,000 in there. That's great. But out of the abundance, it didn't cost them anything. But he says, she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. And again, I really, really believe this has everything to do with encouragement for our Messiah, for our Jesus, to see that there are people that will give him all of their heart. Again, I don't think it's so much about the money. I really don't. Because he said that there were others that gave abundantly. I don't think it's about the money as much as what he's saying is their hearts, her heart, was fully given to God. And she didn't hold anything back. And God compliments that. He commends that. He says, that's what it looks like. 
And when you believe that way, guess what? You aren't holding on and you aren't keeping reserves and you're not doing all those things. You're, you're living for the Lord. You're not worrying about those things. It's actually freedom. And that's what we see here. We're going to end there for today with our time. Um, I'd ask the musicians to come up. I, I won't, before you close your Bibles, uh, next week, Lord, if he should tarry, um, we're going to go into verse 7. This is akin to chapter 24 and 25 in the book of Matthew. Much more comprehensive, if I can say it that way, in the book of Matthew. But this is all about end times prophecy. Um, this is all about eschatology. It's something, again, uh, not taught a whole lot anymore, and it should be taught all the time because 27% of your Bible is prophecy. And so as we go through this, one, I want to encourage you to be here. I want to encourage you to bring a friend because I've got to believe there's people that you associate with that have never heard these things. And I bet some are Christians. I bet some are non-believers. And I bet some are maybe Jewish. And they don't know how these things work out. And why did I just pick those three groups? Because to understand chapter 21... From an eschatological perspective or eschatology perspective, you have to understand that God is talking to three audiences here. If you don't do that and you go through this, you're going to be completely confused because he jumps around and he's showing you three different things. The first group is predominantly a Jewish audience. That's the first group and the predominant group that he's talking about because he's saying that those men and women, unless they get saved and, get bo- and are born again, they are going to go through the Great Tribulation. That means much of the nation of Israel is going to go through the great tribulation. And that should burden your heart. It should burden your heart, God's chosen people, because they have rejected Messiah, Jesus. Some will because of faith, but many won't. Because they don't believe in Jesus Christ. The second group is Jews that have given their life to Jesus Christ and Gentiles that have gotten saved. And then the second group that are going to be called out. And it very clearly says that, um, and I love how the Lord puts it in verse 36. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape. You're going to be called an escapist if you believe in, a, in, in the rapture, in the pre-tribulation rapture, right? Guess what? I'm an escapist. Because the Lord says I can escape, I'm going to escape. And 1 Thessalonians 5 says he's going to give the, we're not, the church is not given unto wrath, right? Why do I want to throw myself into wrath when my, my Lord and Savior wants to keep me from the wrath? Amen? I don't get it. But um, that's what it's teaching here. So, yeah, be, I don't try to defend it. You're just an escapist. You're absolutely right. And did you know Jesus used that very word? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, turn with me to Luke chapter 20, you know, 21, and let's look at that. And then the third group. And those are unbelievers. Those are Jewish men and women, children. Those are Gentile men and women, children, that have not made a profession for Jesus Christ. And he speaks very, very firm to those individuals that there's a cost to rejecting Jesus Christ. He doesn't mince words, and he talks and describes a judgment that's coming. And he's asked that none of us here be surprised about any of it. He actually gives us encouraging words that we don't need to be frightened or fearful. We don't need to be terrified. So I encourage you all to come next week. Bring a friend with you. We need to go through these things. We need to be well taught in these things, eschatology, so that you all can give an answer or a defense to the belief you have, why you believe what you believe. Amen? Amen. Will you stand with me? Don't you want to just go for like another two hours? I'll just teach the chapter right now. And man. I love the word of God. I love the Lord. Don't you love Jesus? He's a good God. Father, oh, I know the best is yet to come, Jesus. I get so excited. Oh, I love this chapter, too, that we're coming into. But, Lord, I love all of your chapters. I, I do. I thank you for the wake-up call in my heart, Lord. Thank you for talking to me and gently teaching me that, Lord, I'm going to serve a master, and Lord, I thank you it's you, and that I'm going to render something to that master, and Lord, I appreciate wanting to be a good citizen, but not at the cost, Lord, of of disobedience to you, and I I hold on to that as well, Lord. I see and understand that truth in Scripture. I'll never deny you, Lord. I don't desire to do that. I pray that you don't allow me to do that, and I pray that for my brothers and sisters. Not one of us would ever be allowed to do that, Lord. God, protect us from that. Lord, I pray that we also don't ever get so full of ourselves with the 
uh, word of God that we have as maybe the Sadducees did, Lord, and, and yet misrepresented you. God, forgive all of us for not having humble hearts at times, Lord. Forgive us for Bible-thumping people, Lord, sometimes. And uh, Lord, we know you are so gracious and so gentle. May we operate in your spirit with love, mercy, truth, and grace. God, I pray all, all of us would receive that strength here this morning. And then, Lord, I pray we would be, be aware that there are men in long robes with pretenses. And I pray, God, you'd protect. I, I pray selfishly, Lord, here, you'd protect this flock, this church from that. I pray, God, we would never have that here. I know, God, there are wolves that can come in amongst you. God, I pray you protect us from that. Pray the word of God continues to be taught. There'd be nothing else allowed. And uh, pray for strength that I pray we never get a, a new idea that somehow thinks we, we can do something better or different than you, Jesus, and your word. Pray you never let, us, let that happen here. I pray we would be that church of Philadelphia that you wrote about, Jesus Christ. We'd be overcomers, Lord. So, Jesus, we just lift all these things up to you for, for blessing, protection. But, God, we want to, we're not done yet. We want to worship you because you deserve it, Lord. And we, we love you. And we just want to cry out and call out to your name and worship you and and, and, and let you know, Jesus, just you're God, and we know that, and we're going to make everyone here know it too, Lord. We're, we're going we're to sing out with our hearts, all of our hearts, Lord. And when we give, Lord, we give with all of our hearts. We're going to worship you, Lord, everything in spirit and truth. And we just pray um, for your leading and for your direction and your anointing. In your holy name, Jesus Christ, we pray, and all God's people pray. Amen. Amen.